0: Welcome to Tim Stodd's FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddard. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to the Tim Stodd's podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest this week is Amanda Natividad. Amanda is the head of marketing at Growth Machine. I recently discovered Amanda's writing through the blog at growthmachine.com, and I was immediately impressed by her talent and her ability to write in-depth, meaningful content to facilitate business growth. Growth Machine is a very well-known and very successful SEO agency, and when I learned that Amanda was brought in as the head of marketing, I knew that I needed to speak with her. Amanda's work is very inspiring and it is writers like her that continue to challenge me and force me to level up on my own writing. In our conversation, she talks about her journey as a writer and we talk about many tactics that she uses to ensure she is putting out her best work possible. We also talked about her journey in the Silicon Valley tech startup world and the success that she had at companies such as NatureBox and Fitbit. I'm a huge fan of Amanda's writing, and I'm thrilled to see her join such a team of true professionals at a company as renowned and well-respected as Growth Machine. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I know that you will find Amanda as smart and insightful and as cool and as talented as I did. Uh, So please, with that, help me welcome Amanda Natividad. Thank you for joining me very much. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. You and I spoke a little bit before we started recording about uh, how we're both writers and how I'm always excited to talk to writers just because I feel like, I feel like writers still to this day are, are the best communicators, right? Because when you write something, you have to really, really think about how it is that you're presenting what it is that you want to say. So uh, with that, I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, Before we dive into that, though, I always like to make sure that my audience has a chance to get to know my guests. So uh, please just introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and and who you are.
1: Yeah. So um, thanks for having me, Tim. Um, Yeah. So my name is Amanda. I I grew up in L.A. I lived in L.A. for most of my life. Um, And then I moved to San Francisco uh, about seven or eight years ago, uh, mainly to work in tech. Uh, was there for quite a while, and you know i I really started to think about where I wanted to live differently uh, when my husband and I had our son um, and then more so when the pandemic hit um you know I think a big part of me actually thought we would never move back to l a and you know l a is where all of our family is um, but you know once we had her once we had our kid, I started to to, to realize you know like i really Wanted to see my family more often, you know. Have them be able to build more of a relationship with my son, um, and then also, you know, when the pandemic hit and we were just stuck at home all day, we really thought, you know, we need to love where we live. I mean, you know, you you want to live in a place, you know, that's safe where you feel comfortable. Um, where you, you know, if you're working from home, where you have the kind of setup that you need to do your work well. So we put a lot of thought into how we wanted to live. um, And it ended up just working out where it made sense for us to move back down to LA. Um, So I mean, I've been happy with the move, but I mean, but where I'm happy is also just it gave the pandemic actually gave us the opportunity to be very mindful about where we wanted to live and how we wanted to live. So this wasn't just a, Oh, I want to be close to family. Let's move here. It, that was part of that, but it became much more than that. It became um, what is, what is the kind of space that we need? Um, How do we want our son to live? How can we set ourselves up for success to do our jobs? Well, it was kind of a strange moving experience, but, um, but it worked out.
0: <laughs> if you're willing, I am always, I'm a little fascinated with San Francisco. I've been to San Francisco once. I've never by any means participated in like the Silicon Valley Tech Hub and as an East Coaster. Um, as an outsider, I can speak for myself, but I do get the feeling that a lot of times from the outside looking in, it feels like it's this magical place where like all of this special stuff is happening. But then uh, in a lot of instances, when I, I speak to people who have either lived there or moved away from there, there is that feeling where you know that you could be either participating in some kind of upstart that could change the world. But there's also like this constant fight because the chances of whatever tech company you're working for actually blowing up are pretty slim, right? And mm-hmm. then you also have to maintain the lifestyle that is San Francisco, which is just really, really expensive. So, um, this is a deviation. I didn't plan to go down this road by any means, but yeah. I'm curious as to what, what that experience is like. I mean, is it really this like magical place that it seems like in, in all of the TV shows, or is it, is it like a grind of a city just like every other place?
1: You know, in, you know, in my experience, it's both.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: where it's, where it's kind of a magical place is, I mean, there are so many possibilities and so many people move to San Francisco or to the Bay Area um, to work at a, you know, a cool startup or to try th- or to pursue that career in tech. So you have a lot of people who are moving to this city who are looking to meet other people and make new friends. So it's really, it is really cool that it, it is easy to meet people because there are so many people who are willing to meet up mm. um, and because it's a small area. So, you know, it's easy to, to walk to this neighborhood, take a bus to that neighborhood and so on. Um, and then this might sound kind of weird, but I think part of what contributes to that sort of magical feeling mm. is that the weather never really changes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of like you're just in this bubble that everything is the same all the time. The weather's always like high 60s, which is great for walking um, because you, know, that, you, know, you don't get too hot. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, it, it also is a grind. I mean, I am very fortunate to have had the experience of working at a couple of really small startups, uh, but also one startup that kind of blew up. You know, I worked at Fitbit for several years. So, cool. you know, I really got to experience that kind of grind and, you know, how special it is to, to be at a company that does kind of blow up. So, um, the grind is, you know, it's like, um, you become very aware of what you have and what you don't have. Um, yeah. and it does kind of feel like this rat race where, you know, you always know someone else who got super rich from an IPO or their company got acquired. Uh, and all those things, and you kind of think, oh man, when is that going to happen to me? Or will that happen to me? Or, oh, I bet that person's making so much more than me. Um, but then it's also a city with a terrible homelessness problem. So you also become super aware of, oh, okay, I also have so much more than this other person. Or, maybe you feel like you have so much more than the people who don't work in tech. Um, so it's just kind of this strange city where there is so much magic to it, but you also just become hyper aware of the rat race and yeah. of the haves and have-nots.
0: Very insightful. And I appreciate you being honest about that. I, I'm self-aware enough to see that all mm-hmm. the places that I've been to for the first time, we have this idea about them. You get there and you think it's just a, another place and everybody, every city has their own personality. But uh, but I've I've just heard uh, such dichotomies about the city with the one side or the other. And so hearing that insight mm-hmm. from you is, is really cool. Thank you. Now you're the head of marketing for Growth Machine. Um, I had Nat on my podcast, I guess about a year ago. Growth Machine is a marketing agency which stands out, which is difficult to do. Uh, there's a million marketing agencies. And so the fact that you were able to get a head of marketing position, which is like pretty coveted in this transition, uh, I want to learn how you fell into that role and, and what your work looks like.
1: Yeah. So I, I started following Nat that- uh, and Growth Machine. Sometime last year, um, I first—I think I first heard of them through the podcast series they did about Cup and Leaf and how they grew the site from you know zero to over a hundred thousand monthly visitors. Um, and then from there, I got—you know—I what I thought was so interesting about that was at the time I, I thought I just kind of assumed you know everything that could be SEO'd has been SEO'd, yeah. <laughs> like all this has been done. So I was really fascinated by this idea that. You know, and I think they thought it too when they started the T-blog, but they realized, oh, there actually is a lot of possibility here. And then obviously they grew the site. Um, And then since then, you know, I just kind of kept up with what they were doing. And then I followed, uh, I subscribed to Nat's newsletter, the Monday Monday Medley, you know, sometime last year. And so when I saw that they were hiring for a head of content, I thought, oh, wait, I could do this. I write, you know, I have done content and marketing for a number of years. So I ended up applying, and as we, you know, started talking about the role, um, I I did uh, a project. I submitted a project and, like, kind of planned for what content might look like, but I also kind of turned that conversation into, well, here's what marketing might look like, and as we talked more and more, it, it just kind of made sense to turn this into a kind of head of marketing role, which you know, it, it is very content focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I'm also focused on other things like, you know, making sure our email funnels are optimized, making sure um, generation has been optimized. Um, and then just also thinking about what can we do with content um, in a way that puts our best foot forward in terms of marketing.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, talk to me about that. You're a fantastic writer, by the way. Um, And I really mean that I've, I spent the last couple of days reading a lot of your work on growth machine and one article on your personal blog as well. A little side note, this is the second time this week that somebody told me about Estonia and how like remarkable of a country it is. And so I feel like I have to go there. Um, (laughs) You know, like I said, side note, but there's definitely people that think why bother with SEO? There's like a million new pages of content published a day what are the opportunities? And so from your viewpoint, what is it that you guys are actually doing on the growth machine blog, but also with your clients that does provide these results that you guys seem to continuously provide?
1: Yeah. So this is also, you know, what really attracted me to this, to, to growth machine as a company. I mean, if you told me five years ago that I would be working at a content marketing agency, I would, you know, it's something that, it just never really occurred to me is all. So, you know, I, w- I was kind of surprised to have gone down this path, but you know, what really stood out to me about growth machine is, I mean, at the end of the day, we're just really transparent about what we do and what we don't do. Um, you know, we're not one of those agencies that will just do it all for you. We're very, you know, we're very upfront about, you know, we do content, content creation, SEO and lean building. Like that's what our business is. Um, and then we're also just really transparent about our processes and, uh, our, and you know, how we track success of what we do. We don't say anything like, oh, we have proprietary metrics and don't worry about it. You know, mm-hmm. we, this is how we know things are ranking. Like, you know, when we work with our clients, we give them a, a Google Data Studio dashboard. We, you know, we, 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 we use ARFs, uh, we use Grammarly um, and we're just really upfront about all that stuff. Um, and then there's also just the way we manage clients. Uh, you know, when, when we work with our clients, we really see ourselves as part of their team, but the part of their team that creates content for them. Um, and we develop good relationships with our clients. When, you know, a lot of them are really nice people. Um, and then, you know, and if if we feel like we can't work with you, like if we feel like we're not a good fit for, for whatever reason it might be, maybe it's a chemistry fit, maybe it's um, – you know, maybe we feel like we don't have the expertise in something. We're upfront about that. We'll say, Hey, this might not be the best fit. Um, because it is really important for us that we work with clients where we feel comfortable, that we'll have a good relationship and that we can set them up for success.
0: Is this the work that you used to do in San Francisco? Was it mostly like product based companies? Um, it was a lot of software companies.
1: It was a couple of different kinds of companies. So, I worked at NatureBox uh, many years ago, and that's a direct to consumer snack company. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, I think I was like, you know, employee number 17 or so. So, I was hired to do content marketing, but, you know, I did social media, I did product marketing, PR. So, it was kind of a marketing generalist role, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then when I joined Fitbit a couple years later, I was one of the early hires on their B2B marketing team. So I headed up content there and, you know, B2B marketing at Fitbit was, um, partly it was devices, you know, selling the actual Fitbit devices, but it was also SaaS. So uh, software that we sold to help other companies uh, run corporate wellness programs for their employees.
0: Yeah, very cool. So the reason I'm asking, is this the first time that you've been involved with more of a client services type industry. I'm always fascinated by this because yeah. from your viewpoint, you've been on both sides, right? You've done the nature box, um, direct to consumer, you've done the Fitbit, which is a product and a SaaS model. So what's it like being on the other side with the client services?
1: So I would say this role is kind of similar to my role at Fitbit in the sense that, you know, it is, it is B2B um, and I'm not really client facing in this role or at Fitbit, but, you know, I will I will sometimes talk to clients or, you know, like if we're doing a case study, if I'm learning more about their, about their business needs. Um, so there's that, but I do feel pretty dialed in, you know, to what our clients are thinking about. Um, and then, you know, when I was at Fitbit, when I did a lot of work on the case studies there. So a big part of the role there was building strong relationships with our clients. Um, and some of what I did kind of ended up being the foundation of their customer marketing program. Um, which sort of just came from getting to know our clients really well, like the, the people who work on their, you know, essentially the HR and benefits people who are working with day-to-day, uh, working really closely with them on their needs um, and, we you know, what they were looking for in terms of a product or software.
0: I'm just always interested in that choice because there's pros and cons yeah. to both sides and a lot of people that yeah. listen to this podcast are looking for that idea. You know, they're yeah. looking for that direction that they can go. And the one thing that I would say about service businesses is there's not a big barrier to entry. You know, as soon yeah. as you get your first client, you're basically a business. And with product companies, there's so much upfront costs and there's so much more risk, but like the potential mm-hmm. upside to it.
1: Yeah. But I do think, you know, what's, what's good about being in a, you know, service-oriented company is... You get to meet so many people, mm. and when you when you get to meet people, you can find new opportunities. So maybe you'll be able to, um, you know, as you as you continue to get to know your clients and prospects and such, maybe you you eventually learn. Oh, maybe maybe we should create this product or this new service because this is what people are looking for. Um, maybe you end up building some side projects or. Maybe that, and maybe eventually, that even gives way to a different kind of product that you want to create. So I feel like, you know, I I, I will say like, and you know, earlier I said I never I never expected to work at an agency. Uh, I would also say agency life is something that I think I always kind of glorified. Uh, At least in my mind, you know, I I know that it can be a grind, especially if you're working on a bunch of different accounts and, you know, maybe if you're working at a really big agency, but the thing that I've always liked about it is um, or maybe glorified is, you know, the opportunity there is and getting to meet so many people and getting to understand how different teams, different marketing teams or different businesses, like how they manage their work, um, how they see their customers, how they kind of build customer journeys Um, I think that's super interesting. And I also just feel like being thrown into situations where you have to just figure it out with a client each time. I think that, I just think that that um, kind of forces you into maybe writing better, communicating better, managing meetings better. Um, And so I just kind of feel like, you know, I feel like if you are starting out in marketing or starting out in your career. I think it's a really good idea to start at an agency I think you'll just get a lot of scrappy experience. Um, And then maybe, and then just being exposed to different types of businesses. I feel like along the way, you'll probably learn faster. Oh, I don't want to be in that kind of industry, or I don't want to work on that kind of business. Um, And I think the sooner you can kind of eliminate things from your list of things you may or may not want to pursue, I think the better off you'll be.
0: Yeah. You mentioned using those experiences to become a better writer. And I think that's a perfect transition to talk about your work as a writer. It's hard to be a good writer. And I really, really mean that because it's like such a painful process. And there's a lot of writers on the internet. There's only a handful of writers that I can think of off the top of my head where I immediately recognize them and I find myself like, on the journey of the story that they're trying to tell especially from an SEO agency standpoint you know like getting content isn't difficult there's who knows how many people that can write a blog post for you but being able to keep someone's attention on a page and, and other things like being able to format a piece of content so that it's changing just enough to keep people's attention as they scroll being able to know where to put bullet points and being able to know where to put headers uh, it's, it's really an art like writing for the internet is an art. And so anytime I see somebody that is, in my view, like gotten close to mastering that skill, I always appreciate it. So, uh, how did you grow into your, your skill as a writer? I imagine that you've, you've practiced a lot, but where, where did that come from? What was the catalyst for it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree. I think writing is so hard and I am learning something new every single day, even now, um, I mean, I think I've always, it was just kind of innate for me. Um, I've yeah, me been too. writing for as long as I can remember. Like, I, I think I, I started writing short stories in kindergarten and in fourth grade. And my my early distribution strategy was just sharing them with my teachers. Because um, <laughs> I, I just thought it was fun. And then by middle school, I, I started my first email newsletter. And it was on AOL. <laughs> uh, and it was... About a fictional band, which is really just a vehicle for me to share silly things I found online, um, and I just automatically subscribed all my classmates. It was so silly, but I think really the first thing is is just doing it, like just write, like just get it out there. Um, I think giving yourself a distribution platform, and ideally it's your own, you know, it's your own blog or personal site, or at least your own, you know, Twitter account or something where. Um, when I say your own distribution channel, I just mean for a place where you are accountable for what you're saying. Um, because I think when you, when you think of it that way, when you think of your content, like, oh, the things I'm writing, I'm going to publish, someone might see it. I think that it raises the stakes a little bit and it forces you into thinking about your writing differently. Like it's, it's different to write in your personal journal and no one ever sees it ever. Um, But it's different when you're trying to prepare something for other people to potentially see you start thinking about Oh, is that is this even accurate? Did I spell this right? Is this interesting? Um, And I think forcing yourself to do that will make you a better writer Um, and then I also just think it's important to get really comfortable with having people edit you Um, I think Everyone needs an editor. Everyone does. You know, like not everyone's writing's perfect the first time around, um, and I think it's really important to be to be able to be comfortable with someone else reviewing your work and marking it up and saying this part is boring, I don't like this transition, this sounds awkward, um, and to just find a way to not take that personally. And to just learn from it like even now on the growth machine blog right um two people review my work before it goes out you know we have someone on our great editing team who who who, you know who, who reviews it and then nat also reviews it and you know i think in each time we we edit something i learn something new like oh i you know didn't realize that that would sound awkward or oh that's true like this intro is not very interesting also, more recently, you know, I started following um, David Perell on Twitter. He's I've heard a lot about Writing him school, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so I did his his free course recently, which is really good. Um, I think he I think he he just has really good advice on writing in a succinct and clear way. Um, one of my favorite tips from him is, um, I think it's a recent tweet actually. But it's about starting your story at the part right before you get eaten by the bear. Mm. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's basically a way to think about your writing so that you cut to the chase a lot faster. Um, and I think about that a lot as I'm writing anything. As I'm, as I'm writing a blog post, email copy, a tweet, I, I think about that a lot. I'm like, when do I get eaten by the bear?
0: <laughs> you subtly touched on like so many different fears, and difficulties of being a writer um the one well there's two of them that I want to talk about first off the idea of putting your work in public this is always a kind of a catch-22 because there's this fine balance behind shipping your work and like being accountable for it and not just constantly publishing bullshit that sucks you know like having the courage to say like, this is worthy of being published and also having the courage of saying like, this isn't perfect, but I'm going to publish it anyway. <laughs> right. And it can yeah. be like a real battle in your head because you know that you could always do better. But if you're constantly thinking to yourself, this can be better, then you're never going to get anything out there in front, of, in front of other people. So I've had my own kind of personal battle with this over the years. And I just want to hear about like those emotions that go on with you in that internal battle with you.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I I think about that a lot. I mean, I am someone who's had multiple different kinds of online, of various blogs. I've had embarrassing diary (laughs) lands, a MySpace blog at one point. So I do think about that a lot. Um, In terms of thinking about, you know, well, I would say it, it is just really hard to put yourself out there yeah. Um, I think people are just, you know, it's natural to be self-conscious or to be afraid that you'll get judged or even just to be afraid of internet trolls. Um, but something that I've come to realize and really remember is just uh, pe- people in general, I mean, people don't care about you, you know, <laughs> you know, like no, nobody really cares about, I mean, if it's your personal site, I, I just feel like it's not going to be very likely that you'll find someone who's going to find your personal site and go like, Oh, I hate this. And then uh-huh. leave a hateful comment. I'm sure it ha- it'll, it'll happen. It happens in general, but I think for the most part, people don't really think that way. So I think there's that. Um, and then I also think in terms of publishing what you write. So I write a lot um, and there's a lot that I don't publish yeah. um, and I'll kind of journal, it. I'll put it in, in, in my notes app or a, in a draft on my on in wordpress or something where I, i'll start writing something with the idea that i'll publish it online but then i'll sit with it for a couple of days or even a couple of weeks and I'll, I'll come back to it i'll edit and then sometimes you know once i fully write something and get it out of my system i realize maybe it's maybe i didn't agree maybe in the end it's like well actually i disagree with my original thought or maybe it's just you know what, this actually isn't even that interesting. I don't need to share it. It's fine. So sort of, I think my rule of thumb for ultimately publishing, whether it's a tweet uh, or publishing a blog, um, and rule of thumb is sort of, have I been thinking about this topic for more than a couple days? Like, have I been noodling on this for a week, for a month? Um, And if it stands the test of time, where it's a topic that I think that has been interesting, at least to me, for you know, longer than a couple of days, then chances are it's something that I think is worth publishing. Um, and then the other thing too, is just because you publish something on your personal site or so, it, it, it doesn't have to mean that you need to broadcast it to your enti- entire social audience, like constantly, right? It could just be something that sits there and that maybe maybe someone will find it valuable or will stumble upon it, or maybe you just share it with some close friends, Um, so I think there's that too.
0: Yeah, very cool. I, I like how you talked about the idea of giving content like space to breathe and not necessarily publishing. I, I went through an exercise where I wrote a blog post every single day for a year and I'm glad that I did it, but like it was very rewarding and I definitely think it challenged me as a writer, but in terms of the quality of what I put out there and and also like the quality of the results that I got from it Um, there's something to taking your time putting together content that like really really means something and takes time to absorb because I think it also like it ups the level of it's difficult to quantify like the value of somebody who reads it, you know, but like, I think that there is a way to do that. Like the level of your audience, it also ups that just because by nature of, um, the people that read it are just fundamentally going to be more in that tribe. Like they're going to be more willing to take the time to read that content, absorb it, and like, hopefully take some kind of an action from it.
1: Yeah. But you know, that's interesting that you talk about, um, your, when you were, publishing every day that I mean that must have really forced you into thinking about how you're writing right because I'm sure each day you're like wait is this interesting why do why why am I doing this why do I care about this why does the reader care about this
0: okay so but then what do you think about that um, the differentiation between the type of people that come to read your content like is it what's the value in putting in that extra time to create real substantial content with meaning and length and impact?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I I think about it like if someone were to ask me personally about something I wrote, what would they say and what would they ask me? Um, how might they perceive me? So thinking about things like okay, can I, will I be embarrassed about this if a potential employer one day asks me about this or, you know, if a friend of a friend sees it and says, oh, I saw what Amanda said about this thing. um, Like, do I feel like it's defensible ultimately? Um, And usually for me, when I think about if something is defensible, I think about, okay, and if I use any facts or sources, were they true? (laughs) Like, were those accurate? what was my sentiment in writing about it? Like, was it a rant? It probably wasn't, or maybe it was. Um, was it something that was super positive about something? It doesn't have to be one or the other, but it's more of, would I be embarrassed about that? Mm. Like if I wrote some really terrible rant about something, I can't think of something right now, but if I did, you know, would I regret it in a couple of weeks? Like, would I feel badly about it? Um, I do think about that as I publish. Um, and then ultimately, I think I've, what I've found is when I think about something as defensible, it, it, for me, it waters down potential emotion. So I think as I get clarity on what defensible is, like then I'll start looking at sources, researching, um, understanding why something is the way it is. At the end of the day, when I come to understand that, that thing or that topic, I feel less emotional about it. And I feel like, oh, okay, I, have, I can kind of wrap my head around this and then I can write about it with more clarity and think about it with more clarity.
0: I love that too because I think the evolution of a writer, you start as an emotional writer because what else yeah. do you have to talk about? You have yourself yeah. and your ideas and your opinions to talk about. But there's, for me, an evolution whereas I stopped writing about my story and I started writing about things that, were true in the context of my experience, right? Because you can't argue your experience, but you also can't argue something where it's it's fundamentally accurate. And it, it just forces you to up your game as a writer because as your audience grows as well, you think to yourself, am I going to feel stupid if somebody reads something on here and, like, calls me out on it? Because, like, that has definitely happened to me before. And, like, yeah. I don't know what it is about it. There's, like, something that is so painful about when you just get called out in public for some shit that you said <laughs> that, like, you totally shouldn't have said, you know? Right. You, go, you, you start to think, oh, no,
1: was that worth it? Should I have really said that? Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, thank you so much for all of that insight. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a ton of writers that are going to listen to this and start reading your work and, and see mm-hmm. how much of a pro you are. Um, I, well, I do want nice. to finish off a little bit talking a bit more about Growth Machine because I'm just a fan of the company and I'm a fan of... How do I explain this? I'm a fan of the way that you guys present a service industry in kind of like a new age, let's call it millennial-ish, sort of tech uh, front-facing brand. So my, my question is more specifically about the company. Um, what, what is the culture like there? I mean, is it really as fun to work there as it looks like it is? <laughs> it,
1: really, it really is. I mean, I think what, is, what feels unique to me, or okay, here's what's unique to me about the company. And this is com- the company as a place to work, is there very much is the shared culture of content creation? Everybody within the company has 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 or has had some kind of content-related side project. Cool. Um, like our our COO, Nora Schlesinger, she has uh, her her food blog called The Clean Bake. It has a great it has a huge following, um, and that was something that she started because. And she started this years ago because she wanted to, um, and it was something she. It was a project she wanted to build up, so she did. Um, and there are other people at the company who do similar things. Um, so I think having this kind of shared culture that is core to what we do, content creation, I think that makes a big impact on the culture itself like as, as a place to work. Um, I think that you know, inherently gives all of us an appreciation for content, like for, for good writing and good editing. Um, like I don't, you know, and you know, I think in some companies or some agencies, maybe, um, you know, I I think writing goes it's un, it's underappreciated very, you know, generally, right? Like I think sometimes people think, oh, I can write because everyone can write, I can do it, or like why is that taking so long? But you know, at Growth Machine, we all inherently understand how difficult it is to write, so we have more respect for it, um, and yeah, I think there's just a lot of respect for everyone on the team and what their roles are I think that also just comes from the fact that we are a pretty lean team Um, you know we're we're not we don't have like 50 project managers or you know 50 marketing people or that kind of thing Um, everyone everyone has a pretty clear plate like everyone knows what's on their plate everybody knows what their role is and how they contribute
0: so cool It's really refreshing to hear that it's a group of content creators doing content creation. I I can see in my mind the obviously marketing agencies out there where you just fill in the role for the best kind of resume as opposed to people that appreciate the art of it doing it for people for money, right? And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing when people get paid to do what they love to do and get paid to do what they're good at and get paid to do stuff that helps other people, right? It's like the perfect combination of, of life and work and happiness. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Um, I will certainly keep up with, with your work and uh, hopefully continue to learn from you and your writing. Yeah, so before we sign off, where is it that, that people can find you?
1: Uh, people can find me on Twitter at AmandaNet um, or on the Growth Machine Twitter account. At growthmachine underscore underscore. And check out, you know, the Growth Machine blog and our podcast is back too. So, oh, no way. Um, you
0: guys relaunched yeah, it?
1: We did. Yeah. I think by the time this podcast hits, we will have had one or two episodes. So, you know, be sure to check us out, uh, the Growth Machine podcast. Subscribe. We're going to be doing these weekly.
0: That's amazing. I will put all of that in the show notes of the website. Uh, well, Amanda, one last time. Thank you so much for joining me uh we'll do this again we'll, we'll keep in touch
1: yeah this will be great yeah thank you so much for having me tim cool
0: see ya hey guys it's me it's tim one last time before we wrap up just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast please subscribe on itunes please leave me an honest rating please follow me on spotify it's the best thing you can do to support the show If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.